you would take out your copies of God's Word with me as we dive into Luke chapter 13. We will be finishing this chapter today as we will read verses 22 through 35. Verses 22 through 35. Once again, listen carefully, for this is the word of the Lord for you. It begins, he, that is Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last who will be first and some who are first who will be last. At that very hour, Some Pharisees came to him and said, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let us now ask once more in prayer to his blessing on our text this morning. Lord Jesus, we have a very important passage in front of us, for it is your word. And I pray that we would hear it carefully, that we would not pass by it lightly. And I pray that I would preach it accurately and that we would hear its words and be changed by it. It's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen. One of the things that I have realized in my life is that there really isn't anything that could be truly considered a limited time offer in this world. That item, no matter how much they tell you it's not going to be, 
is going to be on sale again. There will be another coupon coming in the mail. And this certainly is not going to be my final notice that my car's extended warranty is about to expire. No matter how many times I put myself on their do not call list. At the end of the day, these companies want your business. And they're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that you spend your hard-earned money with them. And will roll out as many special offers as that takes. So oftentimes, the best strategy when it comes to these purchases is procrastination. Or tends to work out more often than not. But there is one offer in this world that is truly a limited time offer. And that's what we see here in this text before us today. You see, unlike a company, Jesus does not need our approval or business. For Jesus to offer this to us is purely an offer of grace. For companies, it's an offer for you to give them grace, to keep them going. But in this, it's completely the opposite. Jesus doesn't need us. But he is gracious anyway to offer this to us today. Because at a certain point, it won't be available anymore. One day, and that day is set on the calendar already, it's fixed in the heavens. It's fixed in God's mind as to what day we will die, but we don't know when that is. And when that day comes, and when the door is shut, this offer will be over. Now, in our passage today, there is full of things that are offensive to our culture today. The idea that there is a limit on you receiving a gift is offensive enough, but the idea that there is only one way to receive that gift is even more intolerable. The idea that God has provided only one way and the fact that it's a narrow way seems offensive, especially to a people that are used to choice, used to autonomy being able to do whatever we so please. But we are not unique in this being offensive. This was offensive in the day that it was said. The Romans were just as offended by this idea. In fact, when Christians were being persecuted, they were called atheists because they only believed in one God. They only had one way. But this is a truth that must be declared. Because the fact is, the fact that we have any way at all is a tremendous, gracious offer to God. But this way is narrow. And the people that find it are few. And those that do find it, we don't expect to. And those that we expect to, oftentimes don't. That's what we're here to look at in this passage today. As usual, we have our two points today that we're going to be considering. The first is narrow is the way. Narrow is the way. And then two, unexpected are they who find it. You can see those two points in your bulletin outline as we dive into our first passage. Now, as we see here in verses 22 and 23, Luke is setting the scene for us that Jesus is teaching 
And as he's teaching, there's always that person that has a question for Christ. And Luke uses this as a jumping off point to begin reciting Jesus' teaching on this matter. And the question that this man has for him is, are those who are going to be saved few? This was, according to commentaries, this was a debated question at the time. Some, were, some rabbis were saying that there were going to be many people that would actually find their place in heaven. And then there are others, other rabbis that would say, no, it's going to be very few. However, both sides of them were pretty certain that it was going to be most, if not all, of Israel that was going to make it into heaven. Maybe a few people who were extreme sinners won't make it, but for the most part, it is going to be all of Israel that is certainly going to be the ones to make it into heaven, if anyone does. That'll be important to keep in mind for later. As usual, Jesus doesn't directly answer this question. <laughs> this person asks the question. It's a singular person who asks, but then Jesus refers to them. He's talking to the people who are around him. And he implicitly answers this, this question by saying, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able now, we have something we have to untangle here in verse 24. When Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door, what is Jesus talking about? Is Jesus saying that there is some sort of work that we have got to do to ensure our salvation here? The word strive here means to struggle or fight. It's often used in an athletic context, the idea of training very, very difficult, enduring much strain in order to accomplish a desired goal. In fact, the word that's used here for strive is what we get the word agonize from. This striving struggle. But of course, this doesn't mean that we are earning our salvation. We know this because there are lots of other passages that we can turn to to tell us exactly that. Turn with me to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Or if you have it memorized, you can... Read it along with me. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 will clearly tell us that by grace are you saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul is quite clear here. It's not of works. It's not of works. It's not by your own doing. It's a gift. You almost want to say it's like, we get it, Paul. It's not something that we strive for on our own. We could see this further in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Not the righteous shall live by their own working, the righteous shall live by their own efforts, but the righteous shall live in the faith that Christ has accomplished it for them. All of these verses, and there are many others, that will tell us that we do not earn our salvation on our own. Indeed, even without these verses, it would contradict the whole message of the gospel. If we could save ourselves by our own striving, our own moral reform, then it would make no sense for Jesus to come and to sacrifice himself, contradict this whole idea. Or even if Jesus was covering part of our salvation, we had to supply the other half, then Jesus is not a very accomplished savior, is he? Jesus requires some saving himself, if that's the case, because he's not able to finish the work on his own. 
So that's not what he's talking about here when he says strive to enter the narrow gate of making salvation possible on your own. But what he is saying here is to make every effort to understand the gospel that's being presented to you. It's very easy for us to assume our salvation. Or it's very easy to get caught up in other things, other distractions that might take us away from thoughts of eternity. This is actually very beautifully illustrated in a book by C.S. Lewis. It's called The Screwtape Letters. If you're not familiar with it, this is C.S. Lewis's imaginings of what it would be like to fight spiritual warfare from the other side. He is imagining this senior demon who is trying to train a younger demon in the ways of temptation and distraction away from the gospel. And what he's trying to do is to give him guidance as to how to take his human target away from God. And interestingly, he says the best thing to do is not actually to give up counter-arguments. Because ultimately the scriptures can answer those. Those won't be very effective for very long. Ultimately, one of the best ways is to be distracting. And he mentions one man who is beginning to have some serious thoughts about life, eternity, and his dealings with God. And the demons suggest to him that these are indeed very important things to be thinking about, but not on an empty stomach. Let's wait until after lunch, and we can think about these things then, when we're in a less concerned state. Of course, the man does, has lunch, and promptly forgets what it was he was supposed to be dealing with. Distraction is a marvelous tool in the hands of an enemy. Because we can be put our we can have our minds put to things that seem very important in the moment. But in the end, all it is is a distraction away from those things that only matter. The only things that matter, that is eternity. This is why we strive to understand this gospel. That we don't just want to sit passively and assume that we know it. Or assume, even worse, that we're past it. That we don't need the gospel anymore because we've been Christians for so long. But it is a constant coming back to this. And if this is something that you are struggling with, either you, you here in this room or those who are watching on our stream, if this is something that you are still struggling to understand, I would love to help you through this. It would do my heart wonderful good to show you the gospel and to help you to understand it. Don't let embarrassment stop you if that's the case. There can be those of us who have been in church for a long time and can just struggle to really say that I really get this. Don't let that stop you. Don't let pride condemn you to hell. Because at some point, as this passage continues to say, the offer of salvation will be closed. For those of us that do not strive to understand the gospel, for those that don't want to lay hold of the promises that have been given to us, well, as one commentator says, if we refuse to enter the door that God has given for us, we should not be offended if he decides to close it. And here we see some people who have done exactly that, and that they are rather surprised when they knock on the door that he is not opening 
to them. Look here with me. In verse 25, it says, When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you began to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. And he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Here, these people assume that they are familiar with the Lord. They refer to him as that. Like they have a relationship with him. As if they have a relationship with him. Calling him Lord. But when they try to say, yes, we are familiar with you. All they can manage to bring is to say, well, we've, we've had food with you. You've taught in our streets. We've been proximately close to you. It doesn't take much imagination to realize what he's talking about is the nation of Israel that's in front of him. Those who have been given his word for millennia. And here the son of God himself has come to teach and to eat with them. But such sort of distant acquaintances is not what Jesus is looking for. He's not looking for admirers. He's looking for disciples. He's not looking for those that would, are content to stand far off. But for those who have come and have entered into a relationship with him. Not some superficial awareness. And Jesus doesn't spare any words. Here and he says in verse 27, for the future of what this would look like. He says, but I, he will say, I tell you, do, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in, in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. It's a horrifying picture. The idea that we could be locked out of something so permanent as that. There isn't any sort of illustration that I could draw that would come anywhere close to imagining what that would be. We've all experienced those panicky moments when we've lost a document that we need or when we've lost track of something that's incredibly important to us, especially as tax season approaches. But something like that, the consequences of that are nothing in comparison to this. Here are these words that he's using of weeping and gnashing of teeth are incredible displays of grief and regret. When the patriarchs of the faith and the prophets, as we're going to notice, were all killed, are coming into the kingdom of God, but they themselves are cast out. It's a very narrow way he's off that he is telling us. No other gospel, no other God. No other effort that we could come up with or list of rules that our conscience can agree with will get us through that narrow gate. It's only Christ and him alone. It requires that we do something we don't like to do, or at least what I don't like to do anyway, is admit that we're guilty. To admit that we can't do this on our own, that we're not powerful enough to solve this problem. And to humble ourselves and go through this way. Now, this 
narrow gate that we've been covering, we'll find that it is even narrower than we thought. The old statement goes of a Baptist preacher who was confronted for being incredibly narrow-minded to say that only people in his Christian group, Christians at large, were going to be able to go to heaven. And he said, oh, I'm even more narrow-minded than you think. He says, I don't even think everyone in my group is going. The idea that those of us that would sit in church pews, those of us that have been raised on this, who have lived in the church, who are ministers, might not see the entrance to this gate. And that's what we'll see here in our next point. Unexpected are they who find it. Here, Jesus in verse 29 is referring to people who are entering into the kingdom of God from all over the world, the Gentiles. Now, of course, those who have been reading, those Jewish people who have been reading their Old Testament carefully would know that this was always the plan, that God would be a God of the nations. When we were looking this morning at the, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Sunday school, the covenant of Abraham, that covenant was made with Abraham when he was uncircumcised. It, wasn't, it was never just an exclusively Jewish thing. It was always the plan to include the nations. What Israel was supposed to be was to be a light to the rest of the world. And here he is saying in verses 29 and 30 that these are going to be coming into the kingdom. It says, behold, some who are last will be first, and some that are first will be last. We can oftentimes put together a lot of different categories for people. We've segmented people into various boxes for ourselves based on categories that are our own making, rather arbitrary, to slide these people in here. Those are those that we would think would be expected to be successes or expected to be failures, expected to be those that are favored by God or expected by those who are not. And we've seen startling reversals over the course of history when God wants to start his covenant people. He goes and finds this man and wife who are well past childbearing years and says, I'm going to make out of you a great nation that is going to be a blessing to all the world. I'm going to take you out of your land. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to take your aged body and produce kings and descendants that will be a blessing forever. There's nothing special about Abraham. Abraham worshiped idols just like everybody else did in Ur. He was called out, pulled out, a startling reversal. Or the Israelite slaves in Egypt, people who had known nothing but slavery for 400 years, working for one of the most powerful nations in antiquity. And God says, I'm going to take those people and bring them out of slavery and make a great nation out of them. And so on and so on and so on. The shepherd who became a king. The one who was born in a manger to rule the universe. First shall be last and the last shall be first. And that is what he's been doing this whole way. And he continues to do that today, by the way. 
we can be tempted to think that there are those that in our lives who are lost causes, who would be the last person to ever come to Christ. And it's amazing what he will do. That's why when we're going to go through this narrow gate, we need to see ourselves in that way. We need to see ourselves as the last of people to deserve such a gift like this, that he would be so gracious as to give this gift to us. Well, let's explore this a little bit more. Let's look in verse 31. It says, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Commentaries are divided as to whether or not these are Pharisees that are operating in good faith or not. We don't know what their motives are. It could be that, they, that some Pharisees genuinely cared about Jesus, that not, not all of them were terrible, and that they wanted him to escape death from Herod. There are others that don't see him as charitably and are saying that they just want to try to scare Jesus off and perhaps get him out of their area so that they would, he'd go somewhere else where the Pharisees had a little bit more influence and they kind of keep a lid on this whole gospel thing that was breaking out. But whatever the case, Jesus is not all that concerned. Indeed, part of the reason why is because that's what he came here to do. Can't threaten a man with death when that's what he's come to do. Jesus is unshaken by that. And then he says to them, go and tell that fox, probably. A, a fox was a, a term for those that were sly or destructive. So it's not a, Jesus isn't exactly brimming with respect for Herod, nor does Herod deserve it. But he says, go and tell Herod, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I finish my course. The threat of death does not change Jesus' ministry at all. He continues to go and proclaim the gospel, continues to go and demonstrate the gospel's power. And then he goes into verse 33. It says, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. This is going to be a theme that we're going to see throughout the rest of Luke. How he is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem. In fact, that's what we saw in verse 22, didn't it? We, he went on his way teaching through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Every step that he takes is on his way to die. But where is he going to die? Jerusalem? Really? The place where God said his name would endure forever? The city that David once called home? The place where the temple's located? Where Passover was celebrated? The center of worship for God? That's where he's going to go and die. And he's going to join a long list of people that have died there. Prophets of all through the Old Testament. And that this is what he is coming here to do. But yet you can still almost hear the emotion in Jesus in verse 34. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. 
As one commentator points out, Jesus is proclaiming judgment to Jerusalem. Here in verse 35, we'll tell that their house is forsaken, but he does it with tears. We have a lot to learn from that. Can we, as I heard asked, can we give the gospel? Can we tell people about the realities of hell and do it with compassion? It's a hard thing to do. It's a hard balance to strike, but here Jesus does it. And is moved by what's occurring here. Not because he has to die. Jesus is not afraid of that. We've already seen that. But it's the fact that these people would be so close to the blessing of God that they just wouldn't come. Is that to say that Jesus isn't sovereign over salvation? No, no, it's not. When someone is going to come to faith in Christ, it's because Christ has changed their heart. But for those that are rejecting Jesus, they're not doing anything that they don't want to do. It's the tragedy of the sinful nature of humanity's heart. Is that we are perfectly willing to stay as far away from under the wings of God as possible. We like it much better out here where we feel free. What a definition of freedom. But here, Jesus is emotional. Jesus is moved by what he sees in front of him. And he tells them that their house is forsaken and that he won't be seen again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, they will, in fact, say this on Palm Sunday. It's part of the reason why I wanted to preach this text. But Palm Sunday is not what Jesus has in mind. Yes, they are going to say that. But what Jesus is likely referring to here is his second coming. And at a time in which there will be those that will be pleased to see him return. That gives a note of hope at the end of this rather bleak passage. That Jesus has very much in his plan. There will come a time in which there will be those gathered together who will be pleased to see the Lord return. We're a part, a small part, but a part of that joyful assembly. and something that we will celebrate. But in the meantime, we've waiting. We're striving to enter into this narrow gate. And I tell you here, if this is something that you have been putting off, this is the time to address it. It may seem like judgment is a really far off time from now, because it has been a long time. We think about, when we think about Noah and the ark, we tend to think that he put that together in just a few weeks or so, while Noah is preaching judgment that the flood is coming. But indeed, he was working on that ark for 120 years. Can you imagine the people at a certain point would say, yep, there goes old Noah again, building that boat, telling us it's going to rain. There's judgment that's coming. 
We've been here for 119 years. Nothing's happened so far. So it's just going to keep going the same way it always has. We can't make that same mistake. We need to press that reality to those who are in our lives, the seriousness of the situation. This isn't something that we can put off. This isn't going to be, this might not be an offer that comes around again. So we strive to enter. We strive to get that assurance that we are Christ's and Christ is ours. If you're having a hard time finding that assurance, having a hard time believing that you have entered through that narrow gate, might I offer a couple of possibilities for you, a couple of practical approaches that we can take. This was Assurance was something that I struggled with for a long, long time, probably 10 or 12 years or so, just working to try to find this idea that I could actually be found a Christian. And one of the things that helped me is I had to realize that it wasn't about me trying to lay hold of something that that Christ was, uh, or, or to achieve something in order to impress God. And part of the way that I found that was really meditating on how sinful I actually was. It's a really counterintuitive way to get assurance, but it's to look to ourselves and realize how much we don't deserve that. That that if we are looking to ourselves or our performance or our abilities in any way to provide us assurance, you will never find it. And to spend time wrestling with that until we see that we don't have any other hope and that if we're going to get to heaven at all, it is going to be only because of the mercy of God. It will be nothing that is within ourselves. Or if you're here today and you have the opposite problem, that you say, no, I do know how sinful I am. And there's no way Jesus could accommodate me through that narrow gate. That's when we spend time to meditate on how much Jesus has done and who he is, that he is the son of God. There's no higher authority who has said, you can be forgiven. There is no one that I will cast out. That's God telling us something. That's not someone who got the message wrong. Someone who heard God incorrectly or missed a page in the memo that was sent out. This is an assurance that he can work So what can we take away from this passage today? One is don't just assume and coast in your spiritual walk. Don't just relegate this to a portion of your life, but that following Christ is your life. This isn't something that we do on the weekends or something that we do in the morning but something that we live every part of our lives doing. If you've never felt sorrow and conviction over your sin, you might be coasting or assuming. If you've never had anything challenge you out of a sermon or out of your Bible reading, you're probably coasting. Or if you say, I don't really have any 
sin in my life that I can really speak of. We're coasting and assuming. I don't say this to try to make us feel bad about ourselves or to try to make us discouraged. What I'm trying to tell you is that there is greater life available to you. It doesn't just have to be this way. There could be a vibrant relationship that you can have with Christ that continues to transform you. We don't have to do that. We have a wonderful, wonderful Savior who has blessed us with a narrow way and assures us that that way will bring us to heaven. This is a marvelous gift that he gives to us, a marvelous message for us to take to a lost and dying world. It's a message that we cannot keep silent about. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word that you've brought to us today through this gospel. Lord, I pray that we would appropriate this message, that we would strive to enter into this narrow gate I pray that you would give us the grace in each of our hearts and those listening to see how much we need a Savior, that our sin is far worse than we could ever imagine. But yet also give us the comfort that our Savior is far more able than we could ever hope to dream, that he will save us, will bring us to himself and could do far more than all that we can ask or think. So in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.